talk to you tonight a bit about being hard and being soft. About hardening and about softening. And it's about softening as a way to be in the world and a way to be in our practice. This is really, this talk is, as all my talks are, deeply inspired by the Pizetsna Rebbe, who talks over and over again about the softening of the heart. How in our practice we need to soften and soften and soften our heart. And I'm going to talk about that, and I'm going to talk about various teachings of his in connection with that, and, and some other pieces together. But what I want to start with, actually, is with uh, Paro, is with Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh, as we all know, does the opposite of softening his heart. He hardens his heart. And the hardening of his heart means that he is unwilling to see and hear the suffering of the Israelites, the suffering of these people who are enslaved. And yet, of course, one of the great questions of the Torah is that at first Pharaoh hardens his heart, and then God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So what does it mean that after Pharaoh hardens his heart, God hardens Pharaoh's heart? Of course, there are many explanations. Um, but my, my favorite one is a commentator who says that what it means that God hardens Pharaoh's heart is that Pharaoh starts to habituate himself to the hardening of heart. And once you make the decision a few times, when you walk down that path of hardening, then it starts to just become a habit. That's how your heart responds to places of threat, of lack of safety, of suffering, right? What happens is your heart hardens. That's its automatic response. And what I think is, is crucial about that understanding is that it lets us know that we have a choice. And the choice is both in the moment, but the, actually the choice is long-term. The choice is, what kind of heart do we want to have? Do we want to have a heart that's soft? Or do we want to have a heart that's hard? It says, right, mitzvah gorelet mitzvah, avera gorelet avera. Right, a mitzvah bring pulls a mitzvah in its wake, and a sin pulls a sin in its wake. And it's that same nature. It's not because we're sort of choosing again, but when we start to cultivate certain qualities and ways of being in ourselves. And the natural result is we start to live out those qualities and ways of being. <clears throat> and this happens both internally and externally. That is, as we harden ourselves, we tend to get harder. As we soften our towels, we tend to get softer. When we meet the world with hardness, it tends to throw hard things back at us. People tend to respond to us in hard ways. When we meet the world with softness, we tend to get back softness. People are able to respond to us in a different way. So that's all sort of by way of introduction. But now I want to explore this question of, of softening. How we soften and how we harden. So the first thing I want to invite you to do, and invite all of us to do, is to just try to notice the ways in which we harden to the world. And there's a very simple test. Anytime you experience tension in the body, pretty much, you're hardening to the world, right? You're resisting the world in something. There's some tension, there's some fear, there's some pushing back, there's some not wanting to be in this present moment, not wanting to see what is actually true right now. 
<clears throat> tension arises in us for a reason. When it arises well, it's because there's a moment of threat, and we respond to the moment of threat. There's a tiger. Good. Your body should tense up and get ready to run. But only for the moments that the tiger's there, right? <laughs> then the tension should actually disappear, and we should just return to our normal, calm, relaxed, open state. But we don't do that. We don't do that because we live in a kind of state of constant arousal, right? We're constantly on lookout and feeling that we're being threatened in some way by the world, that the world is somehow unsafe for us. And so we constantly are tensing, are hardening in response to that world. And this pattern, this way that you, that me, that we all respond in that way of hardness to the world is actually something you probably learned as a child. For most of us, we learned it as a child. And you can just reflect for a moment. How did you respond as a child when you were feeling bad? When you were hurt by someone, or angry at someone, when you felt unsafe or unseen, when you felt uncared for or alone, when you felt scared or threatened, or unappreciated or unacknowledged? What did you do? Just take a moment and really try to remember. Did you run to your room? Did you cry? Was somebody there to hold you and hear and see all those emotions and experiences? Did you in some way shut down to protect yourself from what felt like the unbearable pain of those moments? Especially as a child when you didn't have the resources to open to it fully. And then you can just ask yourself, what do you do today when you feel hurt? or angry, or unsafe, or unseen, or unappreciated, or scared, or alone, or uncared for? How do you harden in the face of the world? I was listening the other night to a talk by an expert on, on childhood and child development. She was talking about how many of us feel in some way unheld, like we're not in some way, we don't feel fully safe in the world. We don't feel fully held and profoundly safe and just okay in the world. Right? And she said, you know, in early cultures, in hunter-gatherer cultures, infants were constantly held by a member of a tribe. Sort of constantly in physical contact with somebody. Pretty much 24-7. Right? And were breastfed for at least about two and a half years. And so in earlier forms of human culture, we actually were profoundly held in a different way. Our fundamental experience of being held is actually fundamentally different. And today, who experiences that? When I say today, I mean something like the last 7,000 years, right? Something like the last 7,000 years since the development of a certain form of human culture, which is amazing in lots of ways, right? But since that development of moving out of hunter-gatherer societies into towns, into agriculture, into cultivation, into all the different ways that we live in this world, we've lived in a culture which is unsuited to our evolutionary needs because our evolutionary needs are still, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years in the past. And we're, we're only a, a blip, right? A few thousand years that we've been living in this radically different way. So the question in some ways that I want to ask tonight, and the question of our practice, is how do we hold ourselves 
How do we soften ourselves? Like a baby softening into the arms of its mother. How do we touch ourselves? How do we turn fear into that profound sense of safety and relaxation? That profound sense of presence. What helps us soften? Actually, ask that for a moment. What helps you soften? What helps you let go of those barriers of protection? Love, being heard, being seen, being held, feeling safe. It's wonderful when someone else can do that for us, when they can really reflect us, when they can empathize. It's wonderful when we can do that for somebody else and our practice is all about that. Can we be fully present with the other person? Can we accept everything that they're bringing to us? Can we pay careful attention? Can we be a mirror? Can we be understanding? But what I want to explore tonight is how we can actually provide that for ourselves. That in many ways this practice of mindfulness is a practice of hearing of holding, of seeing, of acknowledging ourselves, of giving ourselves a profound sense of safety, of reparenting ourselves, of holding that child inside who still feels unheld and unsafe. And so that's what we do. We just sit and we just accept everything that arises and we just reflect it back. We recognize how it makes sense. We recognize and we affirm our own experience. It's actually really important. Sometimes we don't talk about it enough. The place of affirming your own experience. One teacher, Michelle McDonald, used to say, you know, when something difficult comes up, say, ouch, that hurts. Right? So just acknowledge for a second. It's like, oh yeah, that hurts. That wasn't so pleasant. It's totally fine to acknowledge that something is difficult. We're not trying to push it away. We're not hiding from it. And our acceptance doesn't, isn't a kind of acceptance which says, like, oh, it's actually totally fine. I'm not feeling anything. It's like, ouch, that hurts. That was painful. But maybe I can still welcome it in. We can empathize. We can tell that part of ourselves. And I, I do this. I literally talk to my house. It's like, oh, I understand you're scared. This is really hard. This is really difficult. And we can meet ourselves with great compassion. We can tell ourselves that we care about ourselves, that we're open to ourselves that we're present with ourselves. And we can give ourselves profound, profound healing in that practice. Profound healing. We can start to shift our basic sense of feeling unsafe in the world to a profound sense of feeling safe and held in the world. And it all comes from, in a certain sense, that softness, right? We can't do it with the strain. We can't do it with the hardness. It's only that soft compassion and acceptance which allows that holding to happen. Suzuki Roshi, a Zen teacher, who was one of the pioneers of bringing Zen to the West, used to talk about mindfulness as soft readiness. Right? You can feel that in your own practice. It's like, oh, I'm just gently ready, softly ready right now. Oh, that's arising. Come on in. Oh, that's arising. Come on in. It's like, no strain, no pushing, don't have to do anything. Softly ready and open to whatever is presenting itself. So what are the ways that we're hard and the ways that we're soft? I want to sort of mention now a couple oppositions between softness and hardness. I hope they're oppositions that you'll sort of note and say like, oh yeah, that feels right. Like what does it feel like in your body to be in these different states? Compassion is soft. 
opposition and blame is hard. Right? Can you feel that? Like you can just notice, you can have you in the exact same situation, see somebody acting in some way. You respond with blame, you can feel the tension, right, in the body, the tension in the heart. And you respond with compassion, like, oh, that must be difficult, that person's acting crazy, right? <laughs> it's like the heart just softened, there's space there all of a sudden to open up. Perfectionism is hard, right? Has to be perfect, has to be just this way. Right? No room to maneuver. has to be exactly the way it has to be. Giving up things having to be a certain way. Flexibility, openness to change is soft. Right? <coughs> doesn't mean there's no aspiration there. doesn't mean there's no like, oh, there's something I want to get done. But it's like, I'm going to really work at getting this done. And if it doesn't turn out exactly the way I want it to, that'll also be okay. Right? Soft. A little movement there has to turn out exactly the way I want it to, really hard. really sucks when it doesn't turn out exactly the way you want it to, which is like 99% of the time, right? Resentment is hard, right? Anger and resentment. Feel that feeling of resentment. It's like, out to get that person, right? Not okay with that person. Forgiveness is soft, right? You can feel that release of forgiveness. Can feel that's what feels so vulnerable actually about forgiveness in part. It's like, oh, but I have to actually soften my heart. Knowing with no room for doubt, I know, I really know, I know 100%, and you are totally wrong, right? <laughs> Hard, right? Can you feel the hardness of it? It's like, I know, I'm certain, there's no possibility, it's other. Not knowing with openness is soft. There's not knowing with confusion and fear. That's also actually hard, right? <laughs> but the not knowing with openness, it's like, oh, don't know. How interesting. Maybe I could explore. Maybe I can get curious. Who knows what I'll figure out? Soft, open, inviting. Hate is hard, right? Anger is hard. Love is soft. Love is soft. Attachment is hard, right? How you can tell the difference between love and attachment, right? Attachment is hard. Attachment is stressed out. Attachment is things have to be a certain way, right? Love and caring is soft. With much compassion and much care, right? It's like when you're like, you can't do that to somebody or to your kids, for instance, right? <laughs> is it love or attachment? You can actually feel the difference. When the tension is there, it's like, oh, there's some attachment in there. Mm -hmm. But it's like, maybe very firm and clear, but without all the tension, without the like, oh no, it cannot be okay if they do whatever they're gonna do that I don't want them to do, right? <laughs> then there's love, and there's openness, and there's possibility. So this softening that I'm talking about is a process. It's something that we learn how to do, that we cultivate in our practice and in our life. And we cultivate it, first of all, by literally turning towards the places we are hard, inviting them in, and softening with them. You can do it right in your practice. 
You can do it with any kind of hardness. Physical pain. Great hardness to work with. It's like physical pain. I see you. Come on in. I'm going to soften right into you. You can do it with judgment. You can do it with anger. You can do it with distraction. Any place where the body, the heart, the mind is starting to tense up. You can notice it. You can invite it in. And you can start to soften. Alan Liu, who was a teacher of Jewish mindfulness, um, used to talk over and over again about softening the breath. Softening the breath. It's just like, oh, on each breath, how soft can we make that breath? And you can ask yourself right now, what helps your heart to soften? Literally explore for a moment. What in your life helps your heart to soften? Where are the places where softness is arising? versus the places where hardness is present. And over for me, softening was quite challenging. Um, it was particularly challenging because it was vulnerable, I think, and because as a sort of a male in American culture, the messages I received were kind of anti-softening. Right? It wasn't sort of appropriate male behavior. And one of the ways I started to learn how to soften, to let myself fully feel, was in art, in movies, in books, in art, to sort of let myself, allow myself to cry a little bit, allow something to move through me. And I want to ask you to explore, each of you, what are the places in your life where the heart starts to soften a little bit, where it becomes a little bit more open, a little bit more present, a little bit more willing to touch the world. What does it for you? I don't know what does it for you, but note for a moment what does it for you and see if you can make an intention to bring a little bit more of that into your week. Right? And literally into like your week, if not into your day. Because it's like into your life that gets too um, abstract. Right? It's not enough. Like you actually have to make an intention. What helps me do it? And how can I have that on a weekly basis? Whatever that thing is. I don't know what it is for you. What can I have on a weekly basis that's going to help my heart to soften a little bit? Help my heart to open a little bit? And so when that softness is present, you start to learn how to soften into fear. To soften into challenge. To give up these strategies of self-protection. Because so much of our fear, I'm not going to say all of our fear, but almost all of our fear, right? Let me say it this way. What's fear for? Fear is a very important emotion. I don't want you to let go of fear, right? If you walk out in the middle of the road and a car starts coming to run you over, you should feel fear and run out of the way, right? If you don't, it's a big problem. Fear is great. But fear is actually really for survival. It's supposed to tell us, you are in danger right now. Get out of danger. And so fear should be present maybe a half percent of our life, right? But instead what happens with us is we create these whole stories of fear, of anxiety, of the future, of what's going to be, how it's not going to be okay, whatever's not going to be. 
And all of a sudden we live in a state of fear. We live in a state of anxiety. It becomes a major part of our life in a way that we don't need at all. And we forget sometimes. We forget what the minimum is. And we forget how much we can be all right just in the minimum. It's a great question. One of my teachers in Mita told me to ask. You know, it's a great question. The question is always like, what's the minimum here? What's the absolute minimum here I need to be safe and all right? And when we ask that question genuinely, we'll usually be absolutely shocked at how low that minimum is. Right? Like, what do we really need to be just safe and all right? I read this book um, called Camp 14. I don't know if you, any, any of you read it. It's an extraordinary book. It's an um, autobiography of a man who was born in a North Korean prison camp. Right? So these are like unbelievable, you know, dystopian. I mean, North Korea is already an unbelievable dystopia. And the prison camps, it's like a whole other level. And, I mean, literally, he grew up, I mean, completely detached from the world. Like, he didn't know anything about the world. He didn't even know anything about North Korea. Like, never mind, North Koreans don't know anything about the rest of the world. But he didn't even know that, like, North Korea, like, Kim Il-jong, like, nothing. And, you know, in a place of extraordinarily just brutality and cruelty and, you know, unimaginable horror, basically. Beatings, humiliation, death, hunger, everyone informing on each other. And he escapes. He's actually the only person we know of who was born in a prison camp who escaped. Right? So he never known anything else about the world. And he finally does various things, and he enters into China. And in China, he's jobless, he's homeless, he doesn't speak the language, right? And he reports in the book, I just found that was like um, extraordinary, he said, but in China, he didn't experience any fear or anxiety. Because after the first day, it was already clear to him that by begging and by taking scraps, he could get enough to eat. He was like, it was clear to him after the first day, like, I could actually have enough to eat each day. Just by collecting scraps from restaurants and getting enough to eat. And for him, that was already enough. Right? There was like, no fear. No anxiety. Because it was like, oh, I can get enough to eat. That's, that's it. Like, that's basically it. I'm okay. I'm going to survive. That's enough. Now, that's probably not going to be our baseline, right? But it is helpful, it's at least helpful for me to see this and recognize, like, oh, right, wow. Like, can I let go of all that stuff and be like, am I fundamentally safe and healthy? Like, am I going to be sleeping on the street? No, right? Am I going to have enough to eat? Yes. Is everyone in my family going to have a place to sleep and clothing and enough to eat? Yes. The rest of it is just not worth worrying about. Right? It's like the fear doesn't help in any of those other pieces. We can just let it go. We can just soften right into it and not be trapped by it anymore. And yet so many of us feel instead a sense of lack of safety. We feel like we're struggling, we feel like we're barely keeping our head above water. 
We have some story that's happening in our mind, and the story tells us that we're not safe. And that we have to do something to make ourselves safe. But the reality is that the only that we can never make ourselves safe, right? Other than that fundamental baseline. We can make sure we have that fundamental baseline, right? But more than that, actually, there's nothing we can do to guarantee our safety. And even that fundamental baseline, of course, we can't guarantee our safety. As we all know, things can happen at any moment. People die, right? It happens. Accidents, tragedies, whatever. Things happen, right? There's no guarantees there. But we actually don't need to create some structure which makes ourselves feel safe we can actually soften into that very feeling of not being safe. And in the deep softening into it, we will discover the profound safety that is always already there. If we just stop resisting it and pushing against it, if we're just willing to really, really let go and soften into the fear itself, to welcome in and to hold it like a mother cradling a child, we'll find a profound sense of safety. Because we'll find the safety, which is our willingness and ability to be with whatever arises. That is our true safety, right? Not figuring out how to make things safe around us, how to get the right support, right circumstances, because we'll never figure that out fully. But it's the safety of knowing I can be present, wise, and aware, and compassionate in the circumstances, whatever the circumstances are. And when we do that, we can stop this kind of scrabbling, this sort of desperate work to make life okay, to make life safe. We can stop being, you know, a teacher said, the general manager of the universe, right? It's a tough job, the general manager of the universe, right? It's a little too much for us. It's hard to have that on our shoulders. It doesn't work out that well, right? We can just relax it a little bit. It's like, oh, I don't have to be the general manager of the universe. Oh, great. I can just let go, actually. I can just relax right into this moment and see what's appropriate, see what response is needed. I can just soften and soften and soften again. And the reason I want to keep talking about softening and hardness is because Sometimes it's hard to see when we think we're the general manager of the universe, right? Like, we don't notice it. And there's an easy way to notice it. Just come back to your body and notice, is it hard or is it soft? It's like that easy. It's like, oh, it's hard. Okay, I'm striving about things, and it's not my role to strive in right now. I can just let that go. I can just relax into it, right? And the relaxing doesn't mean, I want to be clear, because we're getting near the end for today. The relaxing doesn't mean that we give up doing stuff, right? We still do stuff from, you know, washing the dishes to changing the world. It's just that we do it from a place of lack of tension. It's like, oh, passionate, excited, committed, present, open, playful. And knowing fundamentally that it's okay 
that I can't control what happens. I can do my best, and that's great, and I'll do my best. But then that's it. Then I can let go. The hardness is about controlling the outcome. Right? The outcome has to be a certain way. But we can never control the outcome. And so the invitation is to soften into it instead. To soften into even the effort. To soften into the passion. To soften into the goal. So we're going to pause there. There's a lot more to say, and we're going to say a lot more over the next few weeks about this practice of softening. And we're going to talk about it just, you know, in a lot of contexts, in our relationships and working with other kinds of emotional states. We're going to start off talking more about fear. So we're going to spend the next few weeks um, exploring, exploring this question of softening and hardness and how we sort of approach the whole world and can soften into the world. So for now, as usual, I want to open it up to questions, thoughts, um, anything that people want to ask or share. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering how, like, to work to be like yourself and like growing into like that person you can be, yeah. while at the same time still remaining soft. Yeah. Great question. Softness is not being wishy-washy, and softness is not being a pushover. The Bizetzner says, and we're going to talk about this more sensitively. He says, real strength comes from softness. As you can see it, somebody who's really strong, you can see the softness in their face, their real strength. And the hard face is actually brittle. It's actually brittle. It's like not, it's not real strength. It's not real centered. And the first thing I'd invite you to do is to actually explore that in yourself. Like when have you felt, what does it feel like to feel genuinely strong? Genuinely strong, right? Not that kind of illusion of strength. In my own experience, I reflect, is when I feel really strong, what I feel is grounded, centered, kind of present. It's like, can't be moved, right? And there's a softness in there. I don't have to be hard. Not being hard doesn't mean I'm just a pushover. Doesn't mean whatever happens, happens. There's a real determination in that softness. But there's an acceptance. It's like, you know, the, what is it? I think it's Psikhtarabhati. I can't remember. Anyway. It says, um, we make, you know, a pentaritora from a reed, which stands its ground, but also bends in the wind, rather than from a cedar, which when a strong wind comes, crack, just breaks, falls down, Right? So the flexibility is a flexibility of I can be present with whatever arises, and I can move what's necessary. It doesn't mean I have to compromise or let go of who I am. And again, for me, I'd say, when I can soften into myself, I can both discover and then be who I truly am. And much of that is about, because so much of the ways in which I'm not who I truly am, is really about anxiety and fear. It's about like, I'm going to get disapproved of, or I'm going to get told off, or I'm not going to be okay, or I'm not going to be accepted, or I'm not going to be seen, or whatever it is that's not going to happen. 
if I don't act in whatever way X, Y, Z, that is the acceptable, appropriate, right way to act, or I think is the acceptable, appropriate, right way to act in that circumstance, right? And when I soften into my core, then I can feel, it's like, oh no, I can just be this, and it's okay. Whatever happens is okay. And it's one of the reasons, you know, when I start off the practice each time, when we hear at least we talk through our posture, and why posture is so important. It's not magic. It's actually training us in that kind of quiet strength. So you know, I can hold that posture, and then like fear arises in my practice, and I notice the body tense around the fear. And right at that moment, I can be like, okay, hi, fear. Come on in. Have a seat. You're welcome here. Don't need to be controlled by you. Don't need to be freaked out. Fear's arising. It's okay. Secure, soft, strong body can hold that. I'm struggling um, with the, the hardness of certainty with respect to judgment, specifically yeah. ethical judgment, yeah. and the kind of ways that I was taught to think, specifically for me as a philosophy student, where it's important to make decisions and judgments and seek truth and act based on that truth. And yeah. Constantly open and not wanting the hardness of, well, I've kind of made up my mind on this matter. I just don't know where that leaves me. Yeah. Not knowing 100% is not not being clear, right? I'm very clear about a lot of things, right? For instance, I talk to you about stuff. I talk about stuff I feel pretty clear about, right? It's like I'm not wishy-washy about it. It's not like I think maybe this will work. You'll all check it out for yourself whether it works for you, but I feel pretty clear that this is pretty important and this will work, you know? In my own experience, if you do this, you'll be happier. You'll be more open. You'll suffer less, right? It's my experience, experience of people who taught me, experience of my colleagues, like, and I'm offering that to you. Very clear. But clear is not 100% certain. Clear is, as far as I can tell, in my experience and everything I know, this is the truth as I see it. And I'm going to go forward with the truth as I see it. Wonderful. But I'm always open to the fact that I might be wrong. I mean, I'm not actually always open to that. I wish I was. But I'm saying, like, <laughs> that's the goal, right? I'm always open to the fact that I might be wrong. And if something else emerges and I see, it's like, oh, oh, maybe I should reevaluate that, right? So what we're, what we're concerned about in that place is not lack of clarity. We want to be clear, and we need to act on the, on the clarity, right? It's not about being wishy-washy or not knowing. But we never want... Of course, happens, but I'm just saying the response, which is no, because that disagrees with what I already already think, right? The fact that that may challenge or disagree with what I already think is completely irrelevant, right? It's not relevant to the truth. It's only relevant to that place of hardness, which is protecting myself and protecting my own, because it feels safe and secure to know and to really know, and nothing's going to threaten what I know, right? So it's like, oh, something arises. I just look at it for a moment. It's like, oh, does that challenge what I think to be the case? No. Okay. Oh, it does. Oh, that's interesting. Right? Just like, oh, that's interesting when it challenges what I think to be the case instead of that's threatening when I challenge what I think it means to be the case. It doesn't mean any less moral um, passion and in a certain sense any less moral certainty with a tweak there 
So let's see, often what feels like moral certainty is really um, blame, right? Blame is different from what I would call, you know, we're just playing with words here, like clear evaluation and assigning responsibility. Yes, I may clearly see what that person did was really wrong and hurtful, and they did it, and they're responsible for it. All important, great. Blame is that story we tell of them being a terrible person, right? And them being fundamentally flawed or wrong or something. Instead of seeing, oh yeah, they just did that bad thing. That was really bad and harmful. They're responsible for it. And I can see how I have the exact same causes in me that could have led me to do that bad thing. Thank God I didn't do it. And maybe because of my circumstances in life and whatever, whatever I didn't do it. But it's not that I'm fundamentally separate from them. That same anger and fear and judgment and need for control and whatever it is, in me too. In me too. Right? So we see that with just as much clarity of saying wrong. And I'm going to do whatever I can to stop it. And that doesn't matter whether it's politics or individual action or etc. Right? But it does lose that hardness. Right? Oh, well. Some phrase like that, which is really good, but I can't quite remember it. <laughs> so, yeah. That's the shift. I'll say a word about the class, and then if we have another minute, we'll see if there's a last question. Um, uh, welcome, everybody. Great to see you all. Uh, this class is by donation. So there's a, a donation plate out there. Um, please give generously. It's what makes this class possible. Um, Nadia, will you collect the money? Thank you. Nadia, will collect the money. Um, we have to put this room back in order at the end, which means just putting the tables in a chet and putting the chairs around it. So when we end, if everybody could help Nadia do that, that would be wonderful. There's a, um email sign-up sheet out there. If you'd like just emails about when the class is and isn't meeting, Please uh, sign up there. And that's about it. I won't be here next week. I'll be in America, but uh, Danny Cohen will be teaching instead. So it'll be a great opportunity to learn with Danny. Yeah? Can I make a quick announcement? Yeah. Um, on Sunday, it's International Mitzvah Day. And so next week, there's. Um, we're doing something called Seven Days of Giving, starting on Sunday on International Today. Um, and, and this is very relevant to what you're talking about because that is my soft spot. And my, like, so much of when I feel open is when I'm being kind with other people and um, giving to myself into the world. So you can search for it online, I guess, um, or on Facebook. Um, there's a website and there's also a Facebook group, but it's called Seven Days of Giving. It's pretty much just one week um, dedicated towards giving. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing. So lovely again to sit with you all. For those who are new, um, I run out of here to the last bus up north, which is where I live. So I apologize. I don't have time to say hi and hang out. But if you get here before 6.30, happy to chat next time. Oh, and just to let people know, we're having a week-long retreat in March. It's a really amazing opportunity to really deepen your practice. Um, we'll talk more about it. There'll be an email going out with all the details and the dates. But 
You can put it in your heads already. That's something to explore.